Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show, Thursday, December 29, the final show of 2022. Hard to believe how many years I've been at this, if you count the old show, before I moved uh, freelance here onto YouTube, beginning in about April of 2020. So we've been at this quite a long time. Of course, the show is supported by you, the viewers and listeners out there. Many of you have been very generous this holiday season sending donations along with uh, sending notes. There's uh, really a minimal amount of news to go over on today's show. And so one of the things I want to do is really uh, get a lot of commentary here on the live stream and uh, questions and do a lot of Q&A and all of that. So we're going to do uh, all of that here. What I may start doing is a call-in feature where I can use Telegram voice chat to basically uh, serve as a as a calling in feature that that might be one way to do this but I would want to route it in because some of the I mean telegrams audio quality can be kind of hit and miss as it is and so we'd want to you know really have that well done but it's great to have you all here uh, we're going to get into uh, some breaking news here to start off the show Fresh round of Russian missile strikes across Ukraine, focusing in on their energy grid. We have a report out from the Wall Street Journal this morning titled, Russia launches fresh missile barrage at targets across Ukraine. Ukrainian military says 69 missiles fired, 54 downed by air defenses. And what's striking, just looking at this story, is the way that the news media has totally and completely given up on the idea of doing any original reporting whatsoever on what is taking place. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that war crimes have been rampant, rampant on the part of the Ukrainians. Absolutely rampant. Uh, the killing of prisoners of war, the torturing of prisoners of war, the rounding up of people who are accused of, of helping the Russian occupiers and, and murdering them, those war crimes have been rampant. And so you aren't going to see the military, or the, the media rather, the Western media, go out with the Ukrainian military and film those war crimes and report on those war crimes. You just aren't going to see that happen. They're not going to be a party to that kind of reporting and exposing of the reality of the conduct of Ukraine's ragtag military. That's not going to happen. Of course, there's been war crimes on the part of the Russians, too. There's, there's always war crimes in a situation like this. Uh, unbelievable atrocities that have taken place in this war. I posted on Telegram that I, you know, I sometimes wonder, like, what if you went back to the American Civil War and you gave one side in the American Civil War AK-47s with, you know, six magazines each. Just AK-47s with six magazines each. The war would be over pretty much instantly. I, I've, I've had those kind of thought experiments in my head before. And one of the things I've wondered is what would World War I be like with modern technology and one of the issues is that we sort of picture World War I through this lens of like the 
you know, four frames per second old video cameras that are in black and white. And then sometimes they're sort of, they recolorize the film. So we picture World War I that way. But unless you watch a reenactment like 1917, you, you don't get a, a picture of it, a vivid picture of it in your head. You have to use your imagination. You can't really see it. Uh, even the cameras, at the still cameras at the time, couldn't really show it the way that it would actually look to your naked eyes. Even World War II was that way. I mean, really, you haven't had photorealistic representations of war until five years ago. I mean, even the Iraq War, we all had big vacuum tube televisions still for much of the Iraq War, certainly during the Iraq invasion. So war has always been something that we think of in a low resolution sense, but I've sort of wondered what would World War I look like with modern technology and high resolution. And now we know. I mean, you, you can go on Telegram. Telegram is really the place uh, where you can see a lot of what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, it is really a ubiquitous app in Eastern Europe. Uh, it's one of the things that I learned going over to Eastern Europe uh, throughout 2018, 19, and 20, parts of early part of 20, is that you know, Telegram is, is, is really a ubiquitous app in, in Eastern Europe. It is used by millions of people. It has some 400 million users worldwide. Of course, we don't know how many of those are bots. Telegram has a real bot problem itself. So it is globally more popular than Twitter, and certainly in Eastern Europe, it's far more popular than Twitter. And there are these channels that put out original video. Of course, they tend to be biased to one side or another. And so you have to take it all with a grain of salt. But the media has given up on doing any kind of original reporting on this conflict. I have not seen any embedded journalists on the war front. Uh, somebody mentioned in the chat a few episodes back that RT had embedded journalists on the war front. I couldn't find much video showing that. The video I did find was a couple of months old, and it wasn't easy because it's been so censored across the internet, but I know how to use Russian search engines, and I know how to use Russian video systems, and even then it was hard to find very much. So they've sort of given up on that. Uh, what there is to show is something that would be very, very disturbing, I think, to the American people. It would be very disturbing to much of the world to see uh, to see World War I-style tactics, a World War I-style stalemate, except you have drones, you have thermobaric missile systems, you have night vision, you have uh, thermal optics, you've got cruise missiles, and you have fighter jets. And then, as I postulated a few episodes back, you probably have a contribution from artificial intelligence, quote-unquote artificial intelligence, Basically, just think about it as commoditized computing powder, uh, power, rather, where you can test 40,000 different tactical moves in a Monte Carlo simulation and know which one's most likely to work, but the other side can do that too. That's what I figure is probably going on here, hence why you really do have a stalemate. So it's remarkable to see. And so when, when the Wall Street Journal comes out this morning and, and reports that there's been a new barrage of missiles... What do we really know? What we know is that it seems there was a missile attack. There's some photos that look like there were missiles that hit. A couple of videos I've seen across Telegram. 
But really, the Wall Street Journal is just reporting uh, what the Ukrainian military says. They're just serving as a stenographer, just as they do for either the Ukrainian military, uh, they do it for the U.S. Department of Defense, they do it for the CIA, but they don't do any original reporting, hardly at all. You have a few images that are picked up, high-resolution images that are done by usually local photographers that then sell them to the AP Newswire or sell them to Getty. So it's very difficult to get any sense for what's really happening. I don't know how much stock to put in these battle maps that come out showing people's positions. So they say 69 missiles fired, 54 they say were downed by air defenses, reminiscent of Syria, where you know, Syria always claims that they shoot down everybody's missiles and shoot down everyone's planes, and there's hardly any evidence of it. Just like when Ukraine claimed to shoot down all of these planes, and you said, well, like, why don't we just, can't we see a photo of a plane that's been shot down? Because you would think, and I think there were like two, but you couldn't really see any of that. So they say they shot down 54 in Ukraine. They write here in the Wall Street Journal, twin blasts rang out in Kiev during the morning rush hour as a sizable part of the capital city's population sheltered underground in subway stations. Just the usual report, kind of what we're used to seeing out of this. Uh, these are the caliber cruise missiles for the most part. Caliber with a K, spelled K-A-L-I-B-R. And uh, at least in American English, it's how they, they translate it out from Cyrillic. You also have Iranian-made Shahed-136 drones involved in Thursday's attack. It does appear, by the way, that the chat is working for today's episode. Uh, Happy New Year, Daniel. Uh, hello, Peter in Canada. And Tim from Canada. Glad to have you. Uh, there was an issue with the chat last episode. I don't know why the chat was seemingly not working, but there was some problem in which the chat was was having a real issue. Uh, in fact, what I'm going to do is just double check it here while we're while we're rolling. Uh, yeah, and it does it does seem to be working here. Of course, we're terribly shadow banned here on on YouTube. I really hope that very soon we can get Twitter back and we can really pump this show out there. Uh, we get absolutely no algorithmic help from YouTube. None. None whatsoever. Uh, and so it's just it's very difficult to to grow the audience, to grow the show. Because you get none of the boost, you get none of the reach that you get. The only people that know this show goes out are people that really want to find the show, and sometimes they can't even find it. So I don't know what was going on anyway on the last episode where for whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason, the chat didn't choose to work. I, I have I have no clue. I was wondering about that. And then at the very end of the show, suddenly the chat did work. And I got like two messages at the very end. So I have no clue. I, I really have no idea why it wasn't working. None of the settings were, were different. None of them were changed. Um, somebody writes here, uh, this is uh, uh, Draconian Methods writes, truly profound how the stream doesn't have 1,000 live viewers. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but, you know, the problem is people subscribe to the channel for the most part and they don't get a notification when we go live. Um, and now it says Twitter has 396 million or three. Yeah. And, and telegram has 560 million. Yeah. 
Yeah, Telegram has huge reach, but it's it's isolated to different parts of the world. My understanding is that it's very popular, for for instance, across much of Southeast Asia as well as Eastern Europe. And when I say Eastern Europe, I mean Eastern Europe plus all of Russia. Remember Russia covering, I think, still eleven time zones. So you know, much of the, much of Russia really, you know, technically Asia, I guess, depending on how you want to break that down. So it's uh, it's amazing. This person says, let's go with telegram calls. I want to talk marijuana. Okay, we let's let's maybe try to do that here um, on the next episode. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get the voice chat set up. And the way that we'll do it is I'll just start it at the beginning of the episode. And when we get to that section of the show, I'll take a number of callers. I think Telegram voice chats are the best way to do it. So if you aren't on Telegram and you watch this show, Sign up for Telegram, get a Telegram account. I'm going to give you a a tip also. Telegram, as I said, has a real spam problem, a tremendous problem with spam. And one of the more pervasive methods of spam on Telegram is that you have these Nigerian, I presume Nigerian scammers that are pumping, you know, crypto or whatever they're doing. And they will impersonate Jacob Wall or they they will impersonate um, Ali Alexander or or anyone that that has a uh, Telegram channel. And they will message anyone who's ever commented on the channel and say some really bizarre thing that sounds like broken English. Like, did you hear about the big storm coming to the bank? Or something like that. And, you know, then they try to push some scam. It never works, but it's it's just annoying for people. So one of the tips I would say is you go into your Telegram privacy settings And just make it so that people that aren't your specific contact cannot message you at all or call you at all. And that wipes out that problem right away. You just, you won't get any of that. I think it would, if I actually ever did want to message you, I think I still would be able to because you subscribe to my channel and I'm the admin of it. But I wouldn't expect that to happen. And so if I do want to get in touch with one of you, I mean, I would probably reach out in the public chat first and and, and tell you to message me or something. So uh, that will wipe out that spam problem in a hurry. Just FYI. It'll also make it so that you can make it so that people can't add you to different scam channels. So sign up for Telegram and then you can do the Q&A session. As I said on this episode, I want to really work the chat here because there's, as would be expected for this time of year, really minimal noise, uh, r- minimal news, that is, and noise. Um I'm here from Censored. That's how I found it. Well, thanks, L. Vincent. Um, sounds good. Look forward to it. Yeah, so we're going to do that. Telegram voice calls are pretty good as well. It just depends on where one is calling from for sure. Yeah, and I think different networks, I think a lot of it comes down to, to Wi-Fi networks. And I, I think that different Wi-Fi networks don't love Telegram's calls for whatever reason. Uh, it could be a Kodak or compression protocol or lack thereof. I don't know. YouTube has been shadow banning for a while. I noticed some videos don't go up even when I search for the title verbatim. Yeah. Uh, the other part is, you know, YouTube search was really made very bad in the last several years. It was really made to be, to be awful. So, you know, you'll search for a particular topic 
you might get 10 results for that topic, maybe. And then it just shows you a bunch of crap from other topics that you don't want to see. And the reason is that that's a big cost saver for YouTube to just serve you up a bunch of other junk that they already have loaded. This is a huge oversimplification, but think of it as already cached. Cached, if you will, is one way to think about it. And so that is, you know, essentially the way that uh, they save money. But it's an awful, awful thing that happens. I finally found a way to fix YouTube search. And uh, at least in the web browser, at least on the web browser, I found a way to do that. And I'm just going to put it at the top of my Telegram channel right now, or or just as my latest post, I just resent the post out. So you just copy and paste this code when you use Brave Browser or whatever browser you use, and it will fix YouTube search so that YouTube search works for you, at least to a large degree, the way that it used to work five years ago. When if you searched, you know, how to, how to uh, analyze volume in fixed income markets on YouTube, you'd get the results of however many videos there were on how to analyze fixed income volume. You wouldn't get four results and then a bunch of other junk. Well, this will return it to that using a little bit of code that you put into uBlock Origin in the browser, and it's great. Uh, but it doesn't fix shadow banning. And that's that's something that's very bad. Um, how can you tell if you're shadow banned? Well, there's different ways. There's different methods of shadow banning. One thing is they'll ban you from the search. Another thing is if people subscribe, they just won't put your video on their home screen or they just won't put your notification out, even if people asked for it. So that happens. Half the comments shadow banned. Yeah, that happens too. Um, yeah. So it's 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 really something. I mean to 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 see what's happened from the censorship standpoint. And again, a lot of this could be very quickly ameliorated. We could have, you know, 3000 live viewers if we get Twitter back. I don't know what the holdup is here. On December 16th, uh Twitter's, you know, put out that they will have all accounts restored within a month. They just had some more accounts restored uh in the last 24 hours, like Carpe Donctum, the uh, meme maker. You know, it's amazing, though, to see some of these TPUSA type personalities that are brought back who shouldn't have been censored. A lot of them nice people. And they're like, Elon, bring back this account. And it's like some Anon meme account. You know, it's like nothing is preventing that person from setting up another Anon meme account. It's a much bigger deal, not when you have an Anon meme account banned, but when your name is specifically banned. You know, when, when they say Jacob Wall is forbidden from having the right to respond in the public square, that's a big deal. I mean, I could do, I could set up some anonymous meme account or what have you. You know, I could call it you know, Jack White TV or something. The but, but why would I do that? You know, why would I contribute to Twitter's revenue, Twitter's active users and all of that under some other name and then also not have the utility in terms of right to respond? It's a major problem. And, you know, I just don't know what the holdup is. It's uh, very disappointing how long it has taken. 
So, I mean, all I can do is stand back and wait. We've done all of the, you know, forms several times over. I've done those forms. Uh, so, you know, maybe you guys can tag Elon. I'm not asking you to do that, but if, if you feel that it will help, maybe you tag Elon, maybe you tag some people and say, it's time to bring back at Jacob A. Wall on Twitter. Maybe so. Um, you know, if Richard Spencer was unbanned, then clearly Jacob will qualify. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, people forget that there's a video out there of Tim Poole interviewing Jack Dorsey and Vijaya Gaudi. I It's pronounced Gaudi, I guess, like John Gaudi, even though it's not spelled that way. And, you know, Tim Poole's there with, with Joe Rogan. It's on the Joe Rogan show. There's a clip of this on Joe Rogan's Clips channel. And they basically admit it's transparently political. They say that Jacob Wool planned to influence the outcome of the election, like the Russians. And it's like, well, the only part of influence the election that the Russians did that makes it a problem is that they're Russians. If they aren't Russians, if they are Americans, then it's within their right to attempt to influence the outcome of the election. But their view was that Jacob will attempt to influence the outcome of the election. Not he has. They said he, he, he plans to, like the Russians, he plans to. I guess they're reading my mind. And there's some USA Today hit piece that was on the front cover of USA Today that day. This is February 26th of 19. And the USA Today hit piece, you know, essentially lays out that I say what we should do is have liberal accounts that speak to liberals. That was the idea. Just an idea, by the way, that speak to liberals in their own language and then perhaps, you know, get them to change their mind. I don't know what the big issue of that is. Uh, I don't know how that's any different from walk away or how that's any different from one of these sort of, you know, Democrats turned conservative types like Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know how that's really any different. But they said even the mere suggestion that there may be a plan to do that is grounds for removal for life. And that's what they did. And they lay this out. Blatantly political. How can we donate, Jacob? Well, that's a good question uh, from L. Vincent in the chat. You can go to Cash App at Real Jacob Bull. It's much appreciated. I would give you other apps, but they've banned us. Uh, PayPal's banned. PayPal owns Venmo. That means we're banned on Venmo. We're not doing Zelle. That's a total disaster. Um, that's just a nightmare. So we can't really do that. So it's it's Cash App at Real Jacob Wool. Cash App Real Jacob Wool. Also, if you go to jacobwool.org/podcast, jacobwool.org/podcast, that forwards you to the Gumroad page for this show. And that's another great payment portal you can support there. Um, if we were ever banned somehow from YouTube, you could also watch there. Um, and and you could still listen on podcast apps everywhere to the extent that they were available. Gumroad has been just fantastic when it comes to not censoring us. I first started using them when it came to Predator DC and I was amazed. Because we've come under some assaults from some of these high-level pedophiles that we've busted on that show. And you have to understand, guys, I, I'm trying to put those episodes out as quickly as I can, but we've been under absolute assault from these people. Uh, 
mainly a couple of them filing completely specious criminal charges against us in Maryland under this kooky file your own charges system where anybody just walks in and basically writes up their own complaint and then you have to go answer to it. Now, of course, none of these charges are ever, you know, taken up by prosecutors because there's absolutely no evidence to support any of them. They charge us with things like wiretapping or electronic harassment or different things. Crazy. All of our shows totally legally sound, completely legally buttoned up. Uh, but then you still have to go into court, sit around for three hours, God knows where in Maryland, and and pick up paperwork, essentially. It's, it's a big pain. So that's been jamming us up basically since July, dealing with that kind of nonsense. That seems to be basically concluded now, for the most part. Uh, but that's been slowing down the pace at which we get the episodes out there. So anyway, yeah, you can go to jacobwell.org slash podcast, or you can go to Cash App at Real Jacob Will. I appreciate it. Uh, so that's a good place to do that. Uh, Politico's out with a story, Politico Magazine here. They're talking about how people are positioned for the 2024 race. Now, I should add that these kinds of analyses are inherently very difficult, inherently often very flawed, no matter where you look. I mean, people said that Barack Obama could not beat Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. In fact, Hillary Clinton wasn't even the projected winner. The projected winner was, if you recall, John Edwards, Senator John Edwards, until it came out that he had a secret side affair and there was a love child and a big tabloid story. These days, I think he would survive that and stay in the race. Back then, it was a huge deal. And he sort of flailed out of the race. Then it was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And in that race, people thought Barack Obama had no chance. They thought he had no chance at the beginning. That's the main point. In 2016, and really 15 going into 16, all the talk was about how Jeb Bush was going to be crowned the nominee, and then he was going to compete with Hillary Clinton and possibly win. He was a Florida governor, I will point out. He had less charisma than Ron DeSantis, obviously. He had the Bush name, which was good for some and bad to others. And he had a lot of money. Because one of the things about Florida and their election laws is that if you raise a bunch of money for a gubernatorial campaign, that money is fungible to a presidential campaign if you choose to launch it. So Ron DeSantis has been able to go out there and essentially raise money for his presidential campaign under the auspices of his gubernatorial campaign. Florida and a couple of other states allow that, but Florida is a big one. And so Ron DeSantis has gone out there and he's raised millions of dollars from the likes of Ken Griffin. Uh, And you have to remember, it's not merely Ken Griffin donating. It's these rich people that throw fundraisers where they throw the fundraiser and then they invite over 50 other millionaires and they all do the maximum donation that they can do. Plus, they'll do a pack on the side that does another amount of spending for you that you're not allowed to coordinate with. So, you know, people thought that Jeb had it. Uh, Paul Walker, or not, uh, uh, Scott Walker, rather, was was second. The Wisconsin governor, another kind of purple state governor that people thought was really going to be great. Not Paul Walker, the actor, but Scott Walker. Shows you how unmemorable he is. 
And so, you know, that was the makeup of the race. And then you had Ted Cruz and you had Rubio. That's what people saw. Well, right now, I mean, people are basically crowning DeSantis as the front runner. The media is doing that. There are polls that show he is far ahead of Trump. But he's not in the race. He's not in the race as of now. One thing that's important to recognize is that Ron DeSantis, because of this sort of gambit that you have down there in Florida, does have a fully funded uh, primary starting point, at least. To the extent that you need money to fire up a primary campaign, Ron DeSantis has it. That's funded and then some. So he can do that. He can certainly do that. I will point out that DeSantis has the curse of really high expectations. And a lot of people talk about DeSantis and they say, oh, he's just great. And you say, well, why, why do you see that? And they saw a clip of him once, you know, a month ago, a little clip on Facebook. The question will be, how great do people, the electorate that is, you know, really across just a couple of states, how much are they a fan of Ron DeSantis when they see him every single day? when they see him under pressure. We've talked about some of his other faults before. I won't belabor them. I mean, we just don't know a lot about DeSantis. Uh, but this article points out that the two undisputed victors in the year 2022 were Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis. It says here in Politico magazine, while many Trump-backed Republican candidates faltered in the midterms, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whom Trump endorsed in the 2018 gubernatorial primary, and he will surely remind us all repeatedly over the next several months, won his re-election by a ludicrous 19 points. That's the widest margin of Florida governor victory in 40 years. Uh, and it was, again, he had a nail-biter four years before against Gillum, a closet gate math addict. And uh, so he wins by 20, you know, or 19 against a much better candidate in Charlie Crist, a longtime you know, Florida name, longtime Florida politician. Along the way, his national profiles continued to grow. A December Wall Street Journal poll pegged DeSantis's name ID at 82%, just two points less than former Vice President Mike Pence. Among who, I wonder? Because if you're asking Republicans, I think, you know, Republican likely voters might know who Mike Pence is. I think if you ask the general public, who is Mike Pence? I think maybe three out of 10 could tell you who he is. I'm being honest. I don't think Mike Pence has ever had terribly high name ID. I really don't. I know he's out there promoting a book right now to try to get his name ID up, to try to test the waters. There was a situation earlier in the week where there were reports that Mike Pence had filed to run, but then his campaign denied it and said, no, that was a prank. Somebody just filed that document. We have nothing to do with it. People say that's him doing a trial balloon. I don't think so. I, that's not what I see in that. There's better ways to do a trial balloon than that. So, you know, you have these uh, political morning consult polls and Harvard, Harris, and YouGov polls. These are sampling Republican primary voters, both at the beginning and the year after the midterms. In those polls, DeSantis's average level of support nearly doubled from 16.3% to 30.7%. So you do have a, a, a degree of, obviously, momentum behind DeSantis. Uh, the, there's going to be a battle going on. There's going to be the people that gave all this money to DeSantis that don't just want it rolled into some random pack that doesn't do them very much good in terms of buying them influence that are going to be encouraging him to run. There are a lot of millionaires out there 
that are going to be encouraging DeSantis to run and billionaires who have donated. These people a lot of times think they understand politics really well. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. That's what you find. Oftentimes they don't. And they're going to be saying you can't really capture lightning in a bottle twice. You have to run now. You might not get another chance. Even though he's a young man, you have to go now. The one angle that I think DeSantis really has on Trump, I mean, there's several angles, but one place where I would say DeSantis has Trump in a corner is on this vaccine issue. There is a significant proportion, a significant proportion of the Republican electorate who are enthralled, and I would even say obsessed, with this vaccine issue still. And I understand the grievance of not wanting to take a mandatory experimental vaccine. I'm not uh, dissing the grievance here or, or minimizing the grievance. What I'm telling you is there's a huge proportion. I don't know what the proportion is, but there's some portion of the Republican Party right now who are just obsessed with this vaccine thing. I mean, they are people that in many cases have not taken these COVID vaccines, whose family have not taken these COVID vaccines. They are people who have not lost their jobs for not taking the COVID vaccines. They've really been personally unaffected by the COVID vaccines, other than perhaps fearing for a while that they might have to take them or something like that. But besides that, and that's a major effect, I'm not discounting this. And yet they'll watch three hours a day of podcasts and live streams and uh, movies about these COVID vaccines. And, and, you know, clearly it's the case that both extremes were wrong about the COVID vaccines. Can we, can we just be frank about this? I mean, on one side, of the, on one side you had leftists who were saying anybody who didn't take the COVID vaccines were basically going to die. And on the other side of the extreme, you had a proportion of, I think, mostly Republicans, also some others, who were just so vehemently opposed to the vaccines and essentially insisting that if you did take them, Everyone who did take the vaccines were, were going to drop dead. This was the claim of a lot of people. And they became obsessed with these, with these personalities that, that built entire enormous brands on this, at least enormous within the world of Rumble and BitChute and, you know, the kind of niche platforms like Malone. And, you know, people call Malone the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. I'm not even just going to go into all of this now. It's just whatever. People can spend their time however they like, okay? But the point is there there is this contingent of the Republican Party and a lot of them love Donald Trump, but Trump is out there still to this day saying that, you know, people should be very happy that he rammed the vaccines through in nine months. And... uh you know, there's a big proportion of the Republican Party that boos when he says that. And, and there's videos out there of that happening. If, at best, they're silent. At worst, they boo him. And DeSantis, on the other hand, is very much, you know, counter-signaling the COVID vaccines. Now, he was saying, go out and get vaccinated. He took his vax, and that was huge. All over. So let's be frank about where he has traditionally stood. But today... He does all of these symbolic gestures of we're impaneling a grand jury. And, you know, it's like, come on, folks, do you really think that 
the CEO of Pfizer is going to be indicted in Florida in some local court in Tallahassee. I mean, let please, please, let's get real here. No, the CEOs of Pfizer and uh, Pfizer and Moderna are not going to be dragged into a Tallahassee courthouse and and in, and and charged with something relating to that. I mean, just come on. This is people living in utter fantasy land here, and by their own choice. You know, telling everyone else they're in a mass formation, they're in a mass formation, okay? People who never took the vaccine, they're spending three hours a day on vaccine concerns of one kind or other. It, it's nuts. It's crazy to me. Uh, Predator DC update. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get as many as I can out there. They're on the Jacob Bull channel, to the extent they're allowed. If they're not there, they're on a Rumble. Um, so it's... Uh, Anyway, so that's one area where DeSantis is leading Trump, if only by symbolic gestures and the like. Uh, so that's what's happening there. They say DeSantis has $202 million. That's far more than enough money to, to do it. But there's a curse of high expectations and all of that. So we got to keep all of this in mind. I, I don't think that these sort of assessments like this one in Politico are worth very much. They make DeSantis the big the big winner, Trump the big loser, Biden the big winner, all of that. What is this really worth? I, I don't think a whole lot. I've got to be honest with you, folks. I, I just I just don't think so. Now there was a clip that I personally clipped from an interview with John Bolton that I found very interesting. John Bolton had a lot of valid critiques, valid analyses of different topics. This is a full length interview for PBS Frontline, and. Uh, it wasn't a soundbite type interview, but there was a soundbite that I took out of it that was a central criticism of the Trump presidency on the ability that Trump had to wield power. And I have made these very same critiques before, but I had never heard anybody compress the the essence of the issue down to a minute. So listen to this clip. There's just so much here to, to value. So uh, take a listen. I'm getting people saying there's no audio. I don't know why. Let me see. Let's see here. Uh, let me just restart this clip for you. My apologies here. Let's see if we have audio now. Or more of a central decision maker over the, those four years? No, I, I think actually his power was diminishing. And I think this is in part because uh, coming from his business background, where he really ran a fairly small organization, that his concept of running the government didn't extend much beyond the physical boundaries of the West Wing. The way you influence government, the way you extend presidential power, the way presidential policies get uh, uh, implemented most effectively is to reach into the bureaucracy, put your people down as far down as you can, uh, tell them exactly what their goals and objectives are, and then delegate responsibility so that all the decisions are not coming across your desk. Uh, and any president has only a certain amount of time in the day and only a certain number of things that can be decided. And the more things you insist on deciding yourself, the less your influence is going to be. Uh, I, I don't think Trump had the slightest idea about Is he becoming. You listen here to John Bolton and look, whatever you think about John Bolton, it, it fine. But this criticism is is so dead on. I mean, you do have to understand that, you know, Trump ran the Trump organization and it was a very small organization. 
not small in terms of his assets. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is one of the largest companies in the world in terms of its assets, Warren Buffett's company. But Berkshire Hathaway has two dozen employees. They have 24 employees. It's a small organization. And the Trump organization was the same way. I mean, you had Trump and he had his executive assistant, uh, Rona. Not Rona McDaniel, by the way. Rona was a, a, a different woman. Um, and then she, you know, she had a couple of assistants of her own to give little taskmaster things to do. And then, you know, Michael Cohen was like the helper running around as the lawyer. So you can, you know, take what you will of that. And, um, you know, the kids had symbolic jobs. Okay. Basically they've been on vacation their entire lives. Don Jr. essentially vacations full time for a living and Eric does the same. And Ivanka does the same. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, okay? But, you know, each hotel or each property had a general manager on site, obviously. And so that was kind of the the organization. And basically, a lot of it was a licensing organization. So some of the buildings they actually owned, many of the other buildings, they were just sort of leasing the rights to the name to. So, you know... There's XYZ condo developer and manager. They develop a condo. They pay Trump a fee to put Trump on the front of it. Not that that would happen today. In fact, it's the opposite today, but that's how that worked. So it was a small organization. And there was a, a perception by Trump that, that the federal government and, and could work something like that. Not exactly like that, obviously. Trump's not that naive, but that it could work something like that. That, you know, Trump didn't perceive that the government extended much beyond the walls of the West Wing or or much beyond the walls of the West Wing and a couple other buildings in D.C. But what John Bolton is talking about is the need to have presidential appointees as far down the bureaucracy as possible. Because when you talk about who is actually running the government— we have to be very specific about what we mean. So who is exactly running the government? You would say, well, the cabinet chiefs and the appointees to the major agencies. Well, if by running, you mean administrating at a high level, um, being an executive to, then you're correct. But, but if by running, you mean who's mowing the lawns, so to speak, you know, who's actually taking actions, you have to go much further down the bureaucracy. So, you know, you look at who is an acting U.S. attorney in Milwaukee. Well, that can be pretty important. Who's the U.S. attorney in the Central District of California? That's important over at DOJ. You know, who's, but you go much even further down from that. Who is the deputy a Capitol Hill liaison for USAID. You know who's the who's the um, deputy uh, congressional liaison for CIA. Who 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 are being appointed to these very low roles across government? Across government, you have across federal government. And this is something that's like everyday discussion when you live in D.C. 
like I do. You have career officials, quote unquote, or career employees. These are people that, you know, send in their resume and they're hired to work as a GS, whatever, inside the federal government, just like you'd work for your state government or what have you. And then you have presidential appointees. And you have something called the presidential personnel office because obviously the president has an idea of who he wants to be the attorney general or who he wants to be, you know, nominated to the Supreme Court. But as you get much lower, there are thousands and thousands, at least 7,000, Schedule C, they call them, or, or presidential appointees that have got to be moved into government. And generally what happens is that when a new presidential administration comes in, they fire all of the old Schedule Cs. If there were some of them that were halfway decent, uh, they will invite them to apply for a uh, for a career position. And like I've got a contact at DHS that, you know, managed to say somehow from the Trump administration to become a career official. So that that can happen. But you fire them all and you put in your own people. Trump didn't do that. He a didn't fire everyone like the thing you do is you fire Comey day one, and then that whole problem never exists, but he didn't do that. And you don't just fire Comey, you fire all of Obama's appointees, every last one of them. And if there were any Bush appointees hanging out still, you fire them too. That's standard, by the way. That's totally standard. That's not anything new. That's just what you do. Trump didn't do that. And then you have to have people that are ideologically on board with you, that are Trump people, This is where you take your field organizer from Illinois or you take your field director from Florida or you take your Fox News surrogate uh, who's a brilliant legal mind. Like you talk about my dad, you know, but brilliant criminal defense attorney in California, had done Fox News for a long time, was a surrogate for the Trump campaign, was heavily involved in the 16 campaign, as was I, but experienced kind of person. He's the guy you call and you say, let's make him the U.S. attorney over here or over there. I don't think my dad would have taken the position, frankly, but he never even got the call. Never even got the call. Because what happened was, is that Trump allowed all of that to just be run by Bush people. By D.C. Bush people, basically. And he said, yeah, yeah, you run it. And he had a zombie government, and anytime he needed to exact any kind of presidential power, he had no ability to do it. In this same interview, Bolton talks about how Trump wanted to pull out of the Iran deal, and his people that were, you know, again, appointed by him technically, but not in reality, like H.R. McMaster, they just refused to do it. They just said, screw you, we're not bringing you the document to sign that says, I'm pulling out. Tweet it if you want, it's not official. And that's what happened. Or or when Trump says, pull out of Afghanistan, the generals just look at him and they say, no, go fuck yourself. We're not pulling out of Afghanistan. But but I'll send a tweet. Go ahead. In fact, we're going to send a thousand more troops uh, next month. That was the Trump presidency. And I I just hate to think back at it because it was so frustrating. You know, when Trump was in office and nothing could happen. And 
I, you know, we were always counted on as the Twitter people and all that to, to make excuses for him to say, well, you know, the deep state doesn't want to do this and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, but they all serve at his pleasure. He can fire any one of them he wants. He can fire any federal employee he wants, fire them and bring in someone new. Well, the Senate might not. Well, okay, then the, the acting defense secretary, if the Senate doesn't want to approve them. Fine. If he approves them while the Senate's out, by the way, there's an argument that they don't ever need to be approved at all. By the way, there's a certain constitutional reading that goes that way. So just the the absolute, you know, feeling that there was just no grip at all on power by President Trump was so immensely frustrating on so many issues. It's like, you know, nothing done about censorship, nothing done about big tech censorship. Did he want it done? I don't know. Maybe he did, but it wouldn't have mattered if he did want it done because he would have told the DOJ to do it. And all the DOJ lawyers who care about getting jobs at big white shoe law firms when they're done at DOJ, who all of which those firms represent various different tech companies, they're not going to do it. So he didn't have his people within the bureaucracy, which you're supposed to have as a president. That's the whole idea of presidential appointees. It's not a a corrupt thing to have. It's what you're supposed to have. It's what Biden has now. Frankly, it makes it much easier as a lobbying enterprise to get things done in the Biden administration than it ever was with Trump. So, um, you know, it's it's just it's just a huge problem. Um, this person, Peter Edwards, says all useless, fire them, then maybe reduce them to to from seven thousand to maybe a hundred. Well, when you no, you wouldn't want to reduce them to a hundred. Because if you were reducing all of those agencies in tandem, you would want to do that because, you know, you would want to reduce the whole size of government. I agree with that. But you wouldn't want your appointees to be outnumbered within the agencies by career officials, most of whom are Democrats. You wouldn't want that. So if you have the need for 7,000, you put in 7,000. If you then later cut down those agencies, then you do so. But I'm just saying you wouldn't want them to be outnumbered as presidential appointees within the bureaucracy, which they were, both by Bush presidential and Obama presidential appointees and then the career officials. They they were, in so many cases, sabotaged and powerless within these agencies. I don't know if Trump will ever understand this point or take it to heart. He still hasn't ever come forth with any amount of um, recompense or, 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 or recognition that he screwed up from a staffing standpoint and he hired all the worst people. You know, he lashes out at these people, but it's like you hired them. You still don't hear any of that. It's unfortunate. Uh, there's this sort of scientific American article that's out. It's, it, it dates back to 2020, but it's making the rounds on Twitter today. Uh, the article is titled, uh, titled here, The Racist Roots of Fighting Obesity. Prescribing weight loss to black women ignores barriers to their health. It says here, uh, black people and black women in particular face considerable health challenges compared to the rates in other racial groups. Chronic cardiovascular, inflammatory, and metabolic risk factors have been found to be elevated in black women, even after controlling for behaviors such as smoking, physical exercise, or dietary variables. And I just don't know that that's true, by the way. And black women have also been identified as a subgroup with the highest body mass index in the U.S., with four out of five classified as either overweight or obese. Many doctors have claimed that black women's excess weight is the main cause of their poor health outcomes, often without fully testing or diagnosing them. Uh, 
while there has been a massive public health campaign urging fat people to eat right, eat less, and lose weight, black women have been specifically targeted. I don't think they have. I think just about, I mean, with the promotion of Lizzo and all of these celebrities that are just these enormous, overweight, big black women, I don't think they are promoting that to the black community at all. Speaking of which, I I don't think they are. This heightened concern about their weight is not new. It reflects the racist stigmatization of black women's bodies. Nearly three centuries ago, scientists studying race argued that African women were especially likely to reach dimensions the typical European might scum. The men of Africa were said to like their women robust, and European press featured tables or tales of, of cultural events loosely described as festivals uh, intended to fatten African women to the desired unwieldy size. In the eyes of many medical practitioners in the late 19th century, black women were destined to die off along with the men of their race because their presumed inability to control animal appetites, eating, drinking, and fornicating. These presumptions were not backed by scientific data, but instead embodied the prevailing racial scientific logic at the time. Later, some doctors wanted to push back, uh, push uh, rather black men to reform their aesthetic preferences, valorizing voluptuous in black women, these physicians claimed, validated their unhealthy diets, behaviors, and figures. Well, go look at a rap video. I mean, it's it's not fashion model type builds that are celebrated. It's these rotund women. That's what's celebrated within the culture. That's what's popular within African American culture, at least. I will say though, I, I and I've and I've heard this hypothesis. I'm not the first person to raise it. I do think that there can be a, I think there's probably a hypersensitivity uh, to sugar that exists. When you look at the African diet, it is not one traditionally that has been dominated by plant matter. Remember, much of Africa, even still today, has not even entered the agrarian age. It's still in the Stone Age. I mean, that's the reality. And so as a result of that, and as a result of the plentiful amount of animal protein on much of the continent, much of Africa uh, exists in a way in which you have a protein-heavy diet that has existed for centuries. This is why you hear stories about uh, Coca-Cola coming into certain African tribes, and the kids have all of their teeth fall out very quickly, every one of their teeth. And you think, well, that wouldn't happen here, even if you didn't brush your teeth for a while, that all of your teeth wouldn't fall out. And so I think there's something to that. And perhaps you, you have a situation in which, you know, they just can't handle um, those levels of, of, of sugar and they, they process carbs in a, in a way that doesn't work as well. But of course, when you look at the, the actual obesity rate, I mean, to, 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 to be at some of these weights, given the height, you've really got to try. I mean, you have got to eat a lot of food, a lot of food. So it's, it's a mix of everything. Like anything, it's multivariate. Um, but, but remember, the contention of this article is that to even address the issue, which is a huge issue, uh, is racist. That's what they say. You are not allowed to do so. 
I mean, I think you could more easily make the argument the other direction, that this perspective is, in fact, the racist one because it's going to cause an early death among more uh, black women. And by the way, I think that the problem is worse the younger you go. That's the other part. I think it's worse the younger that you go. Uh, so there's that as well. It says here, a 2018 opinion piece co-authored by psychologists, sociologists, and behavioral scientists, in other words, people that aren't really scientists, in the journal BMC, Medicine argued that bias against fat people is actually a larger driver of the so-called obesity epidemic than adiposity itself. So, you know, people eating too much. In the 2015, which doesn't make any sense. It's like, what, somebody's feelings make you fat? No, calories make you fat. It's crazy. 2015 study in psychological science among the many studies supporting this argument shows you the usefulness of studies, by the way. I found that people who reported experiencing weight discrimination had a 60% increased risk of dying, independent of BMI, and therefore regardless of their body size. Well, maybe because those people are more, you know, fervent about staying fat. The underlying mechanisms explaining this relationship may reflect the direct and indirect effects of chronic social stress. Additionally, this is where the article really goes off the rails. Living in racially segregated, high poverty areas continues to uh, continues uh, to disease risk for black women. I don't know what that, that's a strange use of the word disease as a verb. Very strange. Uh, Low-income black neighborhoods are often disproportionately impacted by a lack of potable water and higher levels of environmental toxins and air pollution. Now, that's just complete nonsense. You're telling me they don't have drinkable water in the ghetto in the United States of America? I mean, you have a one-off case of some bad water getting sent for a short period of time in Flint, Michigan, and everybody loses their minds loses their, just absolutely loses their minds. Or Jackson, Mississippi, for a short period of time, they, everybody goes berserk. You're telling me that on average they don't have clean water? Give me a break. And then how exactly would that make you fat anyway? And they say environmental toxins and air pollutions. These factors add to the risk for respiratory illnesses such as asthma and lung disease. They also increase the chance of serious complications from COVID-19. Well, let me introduce some data here on this whole asthma issue and these lung issues. If you go to any inner city Section 8 housing project, any, and by inner city, I mean, you know, mostly black, let's say. And let's say it's an indoor one, but it could be the case if it's outdoor as well, like an indoor kind of apartment complex in which, you know, the doors to each unit are not facing the outdoors. And you walk around, but it's the same if it's outdoors, really. The entire complex, the entire complex has the smell of pot smoke wafting through the airs at, at all hours of the day. I've been there in a couple instances for different purposes. And it smells like dope smoke 24-7. I mean, it's just thick in the air. Maybe that's got something to do with, uh, you know, a high propensity for asthma. Can't be good for the lungs. We know that much. Uh, it's just very, very unbelievable. It says, further, these neighborhoods typically have 
a, a uh, surfite or fast food chains and a dearth of grocery stores offering more nutritious food choices. Well, why do you think that is? Have you ever seen what happens when you open a grocery store in the ghetto? Have you seen what happens? It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Food insecurity, which is defined as the lack of access to safe, affordable, and nutritious foods, has a strong association with chronic illness independent of BMI. Simply blaming black women's health conditions on, quote, obesity, unquote, ignores the critically important sophistorial factors. It also leads to a prescription uh, long since proved to be ineffective. Weight loss. How has weight loss been proven ineffective? How has weight loss been proven ineffective? I mean, this, and remember, this is the scientific American. These are considered the credible scientists that you will not challenge or you'll be run out of public life, banned online. That's who we're talking about here. It says, despite relentless pressure from public from the public health establishment, private weight loss industry estimated at about $70 billion annually in the U.S., and in alarmingly high levels of body dissatisfaction, most individuals who attempt to lose weight are unable to maintain the loss over the long period. Blah, blah, blah. We know that. Because they're trying to lose weight, they haven't decided to lose weight. If they decided to be thin, they'd be thin. Just like I haven't decided to be fat. If I, you know, if I just kind of wanted to go ahead and weigh 350 pounds, I would never weigh 350 pounds. I would need to decide to weigh 350 pounds because the, the amount of eating involved would be truly Herculean. I mean, I would be force feeding myself essentially all hours of the day. I mean, I, the thought of doing that makes me want to throw up. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. It'd be candy, cookies, soda, candy, chips, cookies, soda, meals, here, this. I mean, just all day long. That's what some people choose to do. It says here, the most effective ethical approaches for improving health should aim to challenge the conditions of black women's lives, tackling racism, sexism, and weightism, and providing opportunity for individuals to thrive. Well, there's a scientific American, folks. These are your scientists. These are your credible, wonderful scientists. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Well, folks, thanks for watching. It's the final episode of 2022. We'll be back in the new year, Monday, 2 p.m. live on YouTube. Podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks so much for joining me. And I will see you on the next episode, 2 p.m. live Eastern. You can donate again, cash app, real Jacob Bull, jacobbull.org slash podcast, whatever you prefer, whatever method you prefer. I really appreciate it. Have a great New Year's. Stay off the roads if you can. Just don't. I mean, it's just statistically, it's a bad idea to get on the roads driving around on New Year's Eve with a bunch of drunks. I just stay off the roads. Uh, even if you're in an Uber. I mean, you just get T-boned, you're dead. So I would just stay off the roads and uh, have a wonderful uh, New Year's weekend. And I'll see you back here Monday. Thanks so much for watching.